What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DeCebedo and today we're going to discuss two stories. The first is on the opioid epidemic which has been raging during the COVID-19 pandemic and we discuss how at a recent shareholder meeting one company faced the scent due to its handling of its opioid related liabilities. And then we discuss the denouncement of a Georgia voting law by a number of global companies that are headquartered in the state. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The sheer weight of the pandemic has drawn all of our attention in an almost exhilarating fashion. Media, legislators, businesses, and public health officials have all been focusing, understandably, on COVID-19. But the pandemic has been a perfect storm for many of our world's long-term health problems that have been exacerbated by lost jobs, reduced social interactions, and an undercurrent of anxiety that comes with any global pandemic or massive issue. It is this cacophony of risk factors that has grown the opioid epidemic in the U.S. into a much more complicated and deadly drug overdose epidemic during the COVID-19 pandemic. According to a March 2020 issue brief by the American Medical Association, more than 40 U.S. states have reported increases in opioid-related mortality, as well as ongoing concerns for those with a mental illness or substance use disorder. And the CDC's most recent figures have shown that there has been a 40% increase in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids from June 2019 to June 2020 compared to the previous 12 months. And if you remember the times before the pandemic. Some of the blame for this ongoing epidemic was placed on the illicit or improper marketing and distribution of opioids by healthcare companies. In some cases, executives and pharmaceutical companies have faced both criminal and civil lawsuits in 2019 and 2020 due to the role in the nationwide opioid crisis. As those legislative cases remain ongoing, their economic impact has begun to crop up on the balance sheets that companies send to their shareholders in preparation for their annual general meetings that are going to be held usually this month. We have already seen their effect on one say-on-pay vote at Amersource Bergen, an American drug wholesale company. Basically, Steve Collins, the CEO of Amerisource Bergen, or ABC, took home $19.5 million U.S. million in realized pay in the fiscal year of 2020. That's a 32% year-over-year increase in his pay. And it was a pay package that was opposed by 48% of the company's shareholders due to it not accounting for the $6.6 billion U.S. billion of liabilities related to a potential global settlement of opioid-related litigation. And so I want to understand both why the company left out that $6.6 billion when considering executive pay, and also how the ongoing opioid epidemic has been impacting companies. But also, I want to think about an industry that, on the one hand, has been seen as a savior during the pandemic, providing the tools and drugs necessary to help people from the ravages of COVID-19, but also one with this long-term ESG risk associated with the opioid epidemic. So to do that, I called up my colleagues, Julia Jaguer, who covers pharmaceutical companies for us, and Harlan Tufford, who covers company governance for us. And first, I want to know from Julia what she thought about the pharma dichotomy I just mentioned, about them being both villains and saviors in our society right now. Pharmaceutical companies, they've always kind of walked this very, very fine line, right? Um, They have a clear 
Um, you know, there's a clear social component, um, life-saving drugs. It's, you know, it's a human right. And in some respects, COVID-19 has just presented this massive opportunity for pharmaceutical companies, really the whole kind of healthcare industry, but really in particular, um, pharmaceutical companies who've been, you know, who faced, um, you know, bribery allegations, they've placed They've um, faced pricing scrutiny. So in some respects, COVID-19 has really provided this massive opportunity to, to kind of, you know, perhaps right um, some of these past wrongs. Think about it this way. Two of the most important companies in fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer, accounted for four of the 10 largest litigation settlements against pharma companies in the last 10 years. And both companies manufacture opioids of varying degrees and have been involved in opioid-related litigation. For example, in in October of 2020, Johnson & Johnson contributed an additional $1 billion U.S. dollars to an all-in settlement amount that would resolve opioid lawsuits that were filed and future claims by states, cities, counties, and Native American nations. This brought their total paid for opioid-related litigation to $5 billion USD. And Pfizer has paid around $2.3 billion U.S. dollars in litigation for various marketing and health issues related to its opioids and painkillers. And as the opioid epidemic continues to rage during the COVID-19 pandemic, more of the healthcare industry is being pulled into the fray. You know, insurance companies have also been under the spotlight uh, for different reasons. So, for example, for allegedly promoting less expensive yet more addictive um, opiate alternatives. And then distributors are also really interesting because they actually have this legal obligation to report suspicious orders. So perhaps opioids that are in unusual quantities or, you know, at a, at a very abnormal frequency. Um, and these lawsuits and investigations regarding um drug distributors role i think it it you know it's really interesting because it point it can point to to typical governance failures and in the investment world when you hear something like a typical governance failure one thing becomes apparent and that is it begins to be a shareholder problem traditionally shareholders have had a lot of say on how a company is run they do that with proxy voting and at annual general meetings and they get relayed information about possible future risks that are facing the companies that they invest in so there's this question of how these healthcare companies are going to relay these governance issues and risks to their shareholders. And you can consider a company called Amasource Bergen or ABC as, as I've said I'll call it. And not to be confused with ABC, the broadcasting company. ABC that I'm talking about is a pharmaceutical distributor. And recently, it sparked shareholder dissent regarding how it calculated the millions of US dollars in compensation that it gave to its chief executive. Why did it spark such dissent? Well, First, you have to understand how company boards make pay decisions in the U.S. So here is my colleague Harlan telling my ignorant self about that because we are getting to what's called proxy season. And this is going to be an important thing for everyone to understand as companies begin to vote on pay practices, how the company is being run, environmental issues, all those things are going to be discussed in April. When when companies disclose their their financials, they they do so using GAAP, right? The generally accepted accounting principles, and these exist to give companies a way of disclosing their financials in a way that's lets investors make an apples to apples comparison between other companies and between the company's past performance. And uh, you might say this this is what companies should use uh, to decide how how the company performed in respect of. Uh, De determining executive pay and if you were a director and you would be wrong because that is not what's done instead uh, these companies use 
uh, non-GAAP metrics. So what ABC did is it used these non-GAAP or adjusted metrics and removed the 6.6 .6 billion US dollars it set aside for ongoing and possible future opioid-related lawsuits that have been claiming ABC didn't take action to stop or they ignored suspicious orders for high volumes of opioids. And it calculated its CEO's compensation without including those billions. And the thing is, them doing this isn't illegal or anything. Companies do this to try and better reflect the company's long-term performance by removing what is typically one-off expenses from their balance sheets. And this is usually seen as an appropriate thing to do. But in the case of ABC, when shareholders discovered what the company had done, the reaction was a bit different. And that was because it created a worrisome signal about the company. Well, from a governance perspective, it shows that this company has been uh, making some questionable decisions um, at, a, at a very simple level, right? We've, we've got a case where um, lawsuits from, from multiple levels of governments in multiple countries have uh, accrued against this company to the point where, you know, again, we're looking at, at $6.6 .6 billion worth of, worth of damages that they're going to have to settle. And again, that's an estimate. That's not the ceiling for these, for these payouts. And they, they've just swept it aside. And so the board's job there at that point is to exercise its discretion. And, and to do so, I think, in this case, in a way that would have reduced um, the, the payouts that, that the executives got. Um, in the end of the day, and they, they actually, as shareholder opposition to this vote mounted, um, the, the company actually sent out a subsequent letter to the proxy encouraging shareholders to vote and asking them to, to support the sand pay resolution. And, the, you know, they went through their reasons of why they decided not to use uh, discretion to negatively um, reduce the payout. And they talked about the company's share price performance relative to competitors, um, yeah, a comprehensive and effective response to COVID-19, protecting employees in the wake of the pandemic, things like that. Um, but what was noticeably absent from that paragraph there that, that discussed that was the fact that the company had paid, set aside $6.6 .6 billion in litigation for opioid-related damages. And this is the continuation of the odd dichotomy that is the healthcare system. Uh, Amerisource version, like Johnson Johnson and like Pfizer, are a big part of our COVID-19 response. ABC and other pharmaceutical distributors have been distributing emergency use authorized COVID-19 therapies, and they've been helping with distributing the COVID-19 vaccines that we are all getting. So maybe those should be included in deciding executive pay. And one could say, well, the COVID-19 is also a one-off benefit, hopefully. So why include a one-off benefit in pay and not a one-off liability such as opioid issues? And I don't know, that's the mysteries of corporate governance and pay decisions and something that companies will have to figure out how to respond to. Regardless, the way Harlan and Julia tied these two things together, pay and opioids for me, was to note that the importance of pay structures and, and why pay structures are so important for getting executives to mitigate large company risks, such as the creation of a massive drug use epidemic. To an, to an extent, the, the metrics that, are, that we're talking about that, that, that drove executive pay, right, they, they to a greater or lesser degree uh, may have encouraged this behavior, right, this, this pursuit of, of pushing opioids and, and, and reaping, reaping rewards from that. How, how could the company's pay structure have been changed to, to mitigate against that incentive, right? Could there have been a, a provision in the pay practices that um, if as a result of, of conduct overseen by this executive, pay would be uh, 
uh, clawed back. Right, because the pay was set up to incentivize the appropriate distribution of a highly addictive drug. It's getting used more and more, and it's a tool that investors are turning to more and more. You're seeing more executive pay tied to ESG risks. And it's something that Julia agreed with wholeheartedly when I mentioned what Harlan had mentioned about tying executive pay to the appropriate distribution of things like uh, highly addictive drugs. These types of executive pay practices could actually change the incentive structure for these companies, and they could actually be critical in addressing the opioid crisis going forward, one component um, on the corporate side. But then, of course, there's other, there's other players that need to come together, policies, physicians, you know, um, clearly regulators. So, so it's a whole kind of ecosystem um, aspect that, that actually needs to come together. And that coming together can be done with appropriate governance. This is the importance of governance when you have a problem as big as this. You need to be able to have a leadership base that is incentivized, that has the right structure, that has the right independence to look at a problem at a company, even though it's making a lot of money for the company, and say, this is going to be presenting a long-term systemic risk that we need to deal with. And it's something that during the, this proxy season, we're going to be paying attention to greatly because COVID-19 has changed how companies operate. It's changed the risks that they're presented with, and it's going to change how investors react to how companies being run. So stay tuned for our upcoming coverage on that. It, it's as important to the opioid epidemic as it is to the COVID-19 pandemic as it is for the entire running of our global economy. Recently, a law was passed in the Republican-controlled government in the U.S. state of Georgia that seems to try and limit the voting rights of city residents. When this happened, three massive companies that are headquartered in the state came out in opposition to the law, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and UPS, while another large company headquartered in the state, Home Depot, remained kind of silent on the matter. So why do some companies wade into the political fray and others keep their distance? Well, to answer that, I have with me Rick Marshall, and he's our corporate governance guru. And Rick, I'm curious, uh, so Home Depot came out with this statement that basically said, we support equal voting rights generally, but it was kind of like a boilerplate neutral statement. Whereas Coca-Cola, Delta, and UPS, they said they are strongly against the law and condemn it. And it's not like these companies are bastions of liberal thought compared to Home Depot. So why do you think there was such a big difference here in the reaction? Well, I think the Home Depot response is a more typical one, but you know, note that it's not they're not supporting it either. Um, they're, they're taking a more neutral position. And in this particular case, um, I think that actually speaks volumes as well. To me, to me, one of the most interesting things that I see when I look at um, the companies that have been cited here, especially the ones based in Georgia, is that they all share similar owner structures, ownership structures. These are all widely held companies, and um, the largest investors at all of these, with the exception of Coca-Cola, where Berkshire Hathaway has a large stake, um, are essentially the same. You know, we actually, so you and I did this map uh, and our, Carl, our colleague Jillian uh, last November, and we showed in the U.S. the different states that had voted for Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, and we showed their ESG qualities of each state. We were kind of trying to see whether or not uh, the state's political voting record could be seen in the ESG characteristics of the companies that are headquartered there. And what we found was that there wasn't really any kind of discernible 
pattern for either Democrat uh, or Republican voting states. But was was there something particular to Georgia that you found which could uh, show why it has some of these differences and some of these outspoken companies that are condemning a political uh, move by the state's legislator? There isn't really. In fact, the, the great thing about that map is that it shows, and we, we hinted this in the, in the title, it shows that it, it's not really where a company's located that's going to be a predictor of their political leaning one way or the other. Again, I'll come back to the issue question. Um, whether you're in Georgia, Mississippi, New York, California, we may identify those states as being more predominantly red or blue, more predominantly liberal or conservative, but the companies based in those states did not seem to be in any particular way aligned. You know, From a research perspective, that's not a, uh, a high correlation. You know, sometimes it's tough to see these global companies come out for one issue in one area and they're silent on another issue in another area. Uh, but I'm wondering in terms of uh, share price uh, or um, shareholder opposition, um, do you see the companies coming out for, against, uh, neutral on a political situation as uh, helping or hurting their overall uh, view in the market? I have to give you a researcher answer, uh, not a political answer, because that's that's what I can uh, that's what I can deal with. Um, and as far as I can see, it's very rare for a company that takes a po- a particular political stance, even if it's an accidental one, even if it was unintended. Um, it's very rare for them to experience uh, a negative impact that lasts. Um, even a even a very intentioned case like um, Dick's Sporting Goods that you know had a particular reaction to um, shootings at one point and decided to stop selling firearms. Uh, it was predicted widely that there would be a, a huge negative impact, and some people even said, "Oh, that's the end of the company; they're going to go out of business." But in fact, if you look at their share price, they experienced a short-term dip, absolutely. Um, but since they've come back and they've done extremely well. Uh, there's no, there's no, no weakness there at all to see. So, was there an impact? Very short term, not lasting. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the real things that's going on is a lot of corporations do have a lot of say in politics, and and they don't really show us that because they don't disclose donations at a state level, and they have super PACs that they invest to. So, you know, this commentary on politics is a bit less important than maybe uh, getting better disclosures on where political donations are coming from with uh, certain companies. All right, and that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Julia, Harlan, and Rick for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps, and I enjoy seeing your comments. Uh, that helps me improve. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts as well. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you next week.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.